Greetings, this is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and I want to welcome you back to my journey through the book of Revelation. This lecture series will continue until we finish the book of Revelation. We won't do that this lecture, but possibly next week, if not more, certainly the week after. And uh, having completed that journey through the book of Revelation, that will bring the St. Teresa class, which meets typically on Thursday nights, uh, to a conclusion. Although I do plan to return to St. Teresa in August to deliver my summer series. This August, four lectures on Thursday evenings a month with Moses. So in a moment, we'll be returning to Revelation and we'll put in in chapters 18 and 19. We might even get into chapter 20 a bit before my time on this podcast lecture comes to an end. Let's begin, as we always do, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of being able to come together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, <coughs> who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, would you with me find your way back to the book of Revelation? And in a moment, we will walk into chapter 18. I want to remind you of the significance of that principle that is revealed in apocalyptic literature, certainly in the book of Revelation, and that is the principle of recapitulation. Telling the same story from different perspectives, and we've noted that dutifully to this point in our journey through the book of Revelation. In addition, there are stock ways of understanding images in the biblical narrative and, more specifically, in apocalyptic literature. So, for instance, the rise of a star would be symbolic of the birth of a new ruler. Think of the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew making the journey to Jerusalem to welcome to the world the newborn king of the Jews. The falling of a star, not meant to be understood literally, but rather literarily, as the demise of some political or religious leader, sort of a fall from the heavens. Horns symbolize power, a multiplicity of horns, a multiplicity of powers. And uh, we saw as well other evocative images as we began our journey, the creatures, mythical, that we remembered from Ezekiel chapter 1, who appear again in Revelation chapter 4, uh, that have a multiplicity of eyes, are wisdom figures, because they have more than two eyes, they can see better than we see, and so what do we learn from them? Well, we learn to hearken to what they say, and remember these creatures in God's throne room, these four fantastical creations of God never cease crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
And then finally, as we discovered last week in Revelation chapter 17, when we read about prostitution, we understand it in an religious context, right? The prostitution that we are discussing has to do with uh, selling your soul or your life away to other gods that have been worshipped in place of the Lord God Almighty, who said, as he spoke to the people on uh, the site of the giving of the Ten Commandments, you shall not place another god beside me. I don't need a female consort. I'm above all of that worship of the natural created order. I am responsible for creation, not beholden to it. And yet the Israelites quickly devolved into sin, a condition of alienation and separation from God, and crafted, remember, a single-imaged God, a calf, called that God the female consort of Yahweh. And that's why when Aaron presented the single calf God to the Israelites, he said, Behold, your gods are now before you, meaning God, Yahweh, the male side of the equation, and the calf goddess representing the Egyptian idol Hathor, a female who protects people lost in the wilderness. So again, you place no other gods beside me. When you do, we define that as an act of prostitution, right? It's not a literal prostitution act that we're talking about, but rather a figurative act of selling yourself out to other foreign powers and in doing so, allowing the influence of their idolatries into your faith tradition. And that is how God has now seen Jerusalem. She has become, remember last week, the great prostitute. And that prostitute sits on Rome. She's in compliance with Rome. The woman that I speak of as Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 17, verse 4, you'll remember, was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries, her expressions of idol worship. And this title was written on her forehead. The mystery, meaning is revealed. This is Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes. She's sold herself out to others so many times and is the abomination of the earth. And I saw that the woman, represented as this cosmic prostitute who we identify as Jerusalem, was drunk with the blood of the saints, believers, who are being persecuted to death in this era leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and his temple, and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now, finally, in Revelation chapter 17, as the chapter came to a conclusion, in verse 15, remember, the angel, who's the guide of John, the youngest apostle, the receptor of the revelation given, said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's multitudes nations and languages. That it means she sits upon the waters that are controlled by Rome, right? The Roman Empire, right? Rules the Mediterranean world and vast swaths of land beyond in modern-day Turkey all the way uh, to 
India, and the beast and the ten horns you saw. Remember the beast and the ten horns represents Rome under the direction and guidance of Satan himself will hate the prostitute. So you can't identify the prostitute as Rome because Rome is the beast with ten horns and because the prostitute, meaning Jerusalem, had declared war on Rome in A.D. 66, four years in advance of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, Rome detached herself from Jerusalem and therefore sent army after army after army to suppress the rebellion. They, and this is what happens in history, will bring her to ruin and leave her naked, and they meaning the Romans, will eat her flesh and burn her with fire, not literally, but symbolically, everything predicted by the prophets will come to pass. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. So God is in control of all this, and he's taken his hands protective off of Jerusalem, and Rome now is descending upon the holy city with a vengeance. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth and is often men misidentified as Rome itself because in point of fact you can argue that if the woman was Rome and Rome was a great city and Rome was the center of the Roman Empire it rules over the kings of the earth. That's true. But how could Rome hate Rome. The woman can't be Rome. The ro woman is Jerusalem, and I made note of that salient fact in reference to Flavius Josephus and his book, The War of the Jews, the third volume, the third chapter, the fifth verse, and he writes in this time period that the royal city, Jerusalem, was, in all of the Roman Empire, you understand now, supreme, and presided over all neighboring countries as the head does over the body. And so she was a city honored and esteemed as most powerful. And so that again explains why John has in his mind Jerusalem when he writes, the woman you saw is the great city, Jerusalem, that rules over the kings of the earth that is going to come to a violent end. Now, chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. This angel, one of the archangels, to be sure, had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. Jerusalem has become as evil as any manifestation of Babylon, and so the two become synonymous. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, her associations in the geopolitical world that led to syncretism in idol worship combined with the worship of God in his temple. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her because of their political associations. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. No more wonderfully appointed city in the Roman Empire, save Rome itself, 
was there than Jerusalem. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, remember, recapitulation, recalling the warning of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verses 16 to 21, when you see the armies approach, flee to the mountains, come out of her, the voice said, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God remembered her crimes and is going to act against them. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Because in her heart she boasts. And this is taken from the prophet Isaiah chapter 47 verses 7 to 9. I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. And I will never mourn. It's the lament of the mother of a king waiting for him to return from battle. Sure that he's not been killed, but rather is going through the spoils of victory to find some bauble or some raiment to return to her. And so she sits confidently at the window saying, I sit as a queen. No one can ever take me down. I am not a widow and therefore I will never mourn. But tragically, she doesn't realize it yet, but she is a widow and she will mourn most grievously. Therefore, back to verse 8, in one day for her plagues, uh, I'm sorry, therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Again, a warning in the form of recapitulation of the fate of Jerusalem. The agent of that destruction is going to be the Roman Empire allowed to do what the Roman Empire wants to do because God takes his hands off the situation. And why? Again, recapitulation. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, because all will be lost. Any association, any profit imagined from that association will be gone forever. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and they will cry, Woe, woe, O great city. And again, not so much a sense of crying out woe, but rather shame, shame, shame on you, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. Your time has arrived. And no one believed that Rome would take out Jerusalem, whole and entire, and destroy her temple. But they had that as their plan because Jesus predicted they would do so 40 years earlier. And so who would lament the most? Well, verse 11. First, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. The best customer was Jerusalem. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stone and pearl, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood, every article made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men, slaves that were bought and sold in the streets 
of the city of Jerusalem. They will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. And they will weep and mourn and cry out, Shame, shame, O great city, once dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, royal colors, to be sure, and glittering with gold and precious stone and pearl. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to whole, complete, and entire ruin at the hand of the Romans, never to be revived. And then, of course, every sea captain in the middle of verse 17, and all who travel by ship and sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will also stand afar off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Where uh, was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning they will cry out, Shame, shame, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. You were so wealthy you could buy everything that we were selling. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets who are in heaven, most likely because they've been martyred as a result of their faithfulness in the city of Jerusalem itself. God has judged her for the way she treated you. And we recall the saints who are situated under the altar. I'm returning to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. In verse 9, just to walk into verse 10 of Revelation chapter 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They had been beheaded because they proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ and they died martyrs in Jerusalem. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, in Revelation chapter 18, we've reached that point of now, after the delay. You'll remember in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So back to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 20. When the angel says rejoice over her and her destruction, you rejoice if you're a saint who's been martyred, an apostle, James, the first of the twelve to be martyred in Jerusalem, or a prophet like Isaiah, who tradition maintains was martyred in Jerusalem. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Jesus knew that as well, said every prophet has to go to Jerusalem to die. Well then, in verse 21, a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you. No workmen of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of millstone will never be heard again. The light of a lamp, that is, oil production through the pressing of the olive, will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride, married 
in the shadow of the temple will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her, Jerusalem, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints martyred all, and all who have been killed on the earth, meaning because of their faith in God and his Son, our Lord and Savior. Important if you're Jewish. You cannot miss this. In verse 21, the angel, mighty as he was, picked up a boulder the size of a millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon, read Jerusalem, will be thrown down, never to be found again. This is a prophetic reference that originates in Jeremiah chapter 51. And remember, Jeremiah is the prophet who lived through the assault by the Babylonians that led to the initial destruction of Jerusalem and dismantling of the temple. In Isaiah chapter 51, which is one of the longest chapters in the prophetic text, just before Isaiah 52, which details the fall of Jerusalem, in verse 59 of Isaiah 51, this is the message Jeremiah gave to the staff officer when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. Zedekiah is going to pay tribute to the king in Babylon, who will eventually order the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah knows this, and so he sends a message. Jeremiah, in verse 60, had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon. He's writing these things prophetically. All that had been recorded concerning Babylon. And he said to that staff officer, Sariah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read these words aloud. Then say, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. It will be desolate forever. And here's the key in verse 63. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. So the Euphrates River, which courses through the middle of ancient Babylon, will hold this prophetic scroll in place by the stone that sinks to the depths in the middle of the river. Then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring upon her and her people will fall. And this bold declarative prophetic prediction comes to pass with the arrival of Cyrus, right? Cyrus from lands Persian, the Median and Persian Empire rising up, takes out Babylon and Babylon never is restored. So that's the initial prophetic text in regard to ancient and accurately located Babylon, which was in modern-day Iraq, and now the allusion in Revelation chapter 18 to Jerusalem as the new symbolic Babylon that will never rise again. The temple, once lost, will never be restored, and it hasn't been for now over 2,000 years. Now that brings us to Revelation chapter 19. Again, after this summarized recapitulation of the prediction and fulfillment of the prediction, the fall of Babylon, Jerusalem. After this, I heard what sounded like a loud roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, 
in chapter 19, verse 1. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, that is Jerusalem, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, read, idolatries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants, the martyrs, those who have died, professing their faith in God, Isaiah, for instance, and his Messiah, James, the first apostle martyred Stephen, and certainly countless others. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the four elders, 24 in number, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried out, Amen! Yes! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah. For our God, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now the new Jerusalem is ready to descend from heaven, which we'll talk about next week. It'll appear as where the redeemed will spend all eternity. And the angel said to me, Write now, John, write down, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Blessed are you and I, because we've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, overwhelmed at this point, John says, at that word I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then, yet another recapitulation. One, by the way, that is reminiscent of a text we've already studied some weeks ago. You may recall that narrative. I'll read it now from Revelation 6 once again. In Revelation 6, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb, remember that's Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals, remember the document sealed with seven seals is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the prophetic word of the prophets that is going to be fulfilled with the destruction of the temple. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was, remember, a white horse. And its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown. He's royal. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. That rider on the white horse is the Messiah. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one, representing war. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. God is in control of the Romans bringing their armies upon Jerusalem. And to him was given a large sword. And then the Lamb opened a third seal. Come, he said, and I looked. And there before me was a black horse representing famine, which was followed in verse 8 by a pale horse, which 
represented death. And this is the way that the armies of Rome would come, surround Jerusalem, and some would die in the conflict war, that would then be followed by famine when food supplies in the city of Jerusalem are compromised, which would then lead to death before final assault and destruction. So let's keep that in mind, because now back to Revelation chapter 19. I saw, John remembers, heaven standing open as it had been since Revelation chapter 4. And there before me was a white horse. Again, it's not a new white horse. It's the same white horse. And if it's the same white horse, the rider on that same white horse has to be the same as in Revelation chapter 6, who identified as the Messiah. So there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, more than the crowns of the Roman Empire, to be sure. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And again, this is an evocative narrative that reaches all the way back to the book of Judges and the 16th chapter. You may remember Judges chapter 16 as one of the many times we met the angel of the Lord. I'm sorry, not Judges 16. That's the story of Samson. And by the way, he is also privy to that presentation. But I'm remembering Judges chapter 13, the story of the birth of Samuel. And in that story, the mother-to-be of the prophet Samuel is visited by the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. She informs her husband that she has been visited by the angel of the Lord, who has given specific directions to her, not only concerning the conception and birth of a male child, but how to raise him as a Nazarite. Her husband is a bit put off by this and demands that he speak to this man, this figure himself, and is given occasion to do so. And as a result of that appearance of the angel of the Lord to Manoah, the name of Samson's father, the name of Samson's mother's husband, Manoah in Judges chapter 13, verse 17, inquired, asked a question of the angel of the Lord. He said, what is your name. To know a name is to have control over someone. So he asked that we may honor you when your word comes true. And he replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Or in some other translations, it is too wonderful for you to know. You can't handle my name. So that's a story remembered from Judges chapter 13. And I return then to Revelation chapter 19, describing the rider on the white horse, his eyes, verse 13, 12, I'm sorry, are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, again, not the seven, right, there are on the heads of the seven Caesars in succession leading up to Vespasian, who sits on the throne and orders the destruction of Jerusalem, but many crowns, or an unlimited number of crowns. This figure is the king of the earth, of all. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. It is beyond understanding, Judges chapter 13. It is wonderful, 
Judges chapter 13. And Isaiah, again, a series of passages speak about the names of the Messiah that are incomprehensible to men. He is dressed in verse 13 in a robe dipped in blood, his own, right? Suffering, dying, buried. He rose from the grave, but he died a bloody, torturous death on the cross. And his name is the Word of God. Remember, John is the same author here as the author of the Gospel of John. And the Gospel he wrote, which he writes after, many years after receiving this revelation, begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John identifies Jesus as the Word. The Word he's identifying Jesus with is in Revelation, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1. The Word God speaks first in the creation account, and that Word is light. So Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the light. And so he is identified in verse 13 as dressed in a robe, a royal, dipped in blood, a red color, but also symbolic of the blood he shed for our salvation. And his name is the Word of God. His name is Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And watch this now in verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Is it possible that as John sees this vision, he has in his eyesight the appearance of Jesus astride a white horse charging into battle with a sword coming out of his mouth. No, it's a literary image evoking the idea that his word, the voice spoken, the prophecies uttered are coming to pass, you see. And that is how you describe out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, right? His word is coming to fruition. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's from Psalm 2, again, identifying the rider as the Messiah. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Obviously, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. And he is in control of all of these events predicted in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 19, Luke 21, and now coming to fulfillment within the lifetime of many who heard him predict these exact same realities 40 years earlier. And then I saw an angel, verse 17, standing in the sun, who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the middle air, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This again, an evocative image gleaned from the prophecy of Ezekiel, who in chapter 39 speaks of the aftermath of a destructive force that will come down upon Jerusalem, Babylon. And as a result, no one will be gifted the blessing of burial. Their bodies will lie strewn in the open field and the birds of air will come and feast upon their bodies because they will not have been buried. That's also one of the reasons that 
in the prophecy of Ezekiel, the image of the dry bones being called back to life is so powerful because those bones had been left to bleach in the sun above the earth. They had not been accorded the blessing of Jewish burial. And so when we come to Ezekiel chapter 39, we, we understand this image that is being called upon. Son of man, Ezekiel 39, speak against Gog, a king of a place called Megog, which is a land and a king that desire to sweep down and take out uh, Jerusalem. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you. And I, in verse 2, will turn around and drag you along. I will bring you from a far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right. And on the mountains of Israel you will fall and all your troops and the nations with you. And I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field for I have spoken, declares the Lord. And because you've fallen in the open field, you will not be buried. And so you will be pecked upon by the birds of the air. In verse 17, son of man, call out to every kind of bird and to all the wild animals. Say, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Ba-Sha-On. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind. You see, that image of the prophets that Babylon would sweep down from the north and wipe out those trying to defend the city of Jerusalem would result in all of those mighty men lying unburied, bleaching in the sun, rotting as the birds of the air come. As I return now to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 17, to gather for the great supper of God. God is not pleased with this, but it is what is going to happen. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. The destruction and death will be monumental. And when the Romans eventually breach the defenses of Jerusalem, they will spend 45 days in constant annihilation of any living, breathing soul that isn't worth being taken and sold as a slave. And all of those who are cut down the streets of Jerusalem running red with their blood would just be cast out into the valleys surrounding the city to rot in the sun. A very graphic and horrific image to be sure. Now after hearing this, John says in verse 19, again in recapitulation, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Remember the beast and the kings of the earth, Satan in control of Rome and her powers as an empire that have reached its zenith, gathered together to make war not only against Jerusalem, but also against the rider on the horse and his army, against 
the church. And we'll hear about that next week. But the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet, who worked in concert as a collaborator with Rome, the beast, inside of the city of Jerusalem, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast. You thought like Rome. You acted like Rome. That's why you had the mark of the beast, 666, Nero, on your mind and on your hands. Those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them, Rome and the false prophet, were eventually thrown down alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. That is, the word of Jesus came to pass. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That is, eventually. Remember, the word of the Lord was something we recalled from <coughs> Revelation chapter 11, right? And the two witnesses who prophesy for three and a half years. Revelation chapter 11, these two witnesses are olive trees. They are lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Remember in 11 verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. From their mouths come words and the words come to pass. Prophecies are fulfilled. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Remember in verse 6, these men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time when they are prophesying. That's a reference to Elijah. And they have the power to turn water to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. That's Moses. Moses and Elijah, the two great prophets, both of whom had been assumed into heaven. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, Rome, will attack them and overpower and kill them, at least thinking they have accomplished that by breaching the defenses of Jerusalem and destroying the temple. And their bodies will, for a time, lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively, again, called Sodom, and Egypt, also Babylon, it's Jerusalem, where also their Lord was crucified, meaning Jesus, Jerusalem, and Calvary. And for three and a half days, men from every tribe and language and people and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial thinking that's it they're done but the and the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending gifts to each other because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth but after three and a half days a breath of life from god entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them and they heard the voice come from heaven saying to them come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So Titus, his minions, the Romans, under his generalship, thought that they had destroyed Judaism, right? They had destroyed the temple. They had destroyed their arch enemy. They had destroyed Moses and Elijah, when in point of fact, they had not, right? They rise again and, and still continue to be present in our world even today. Now that brings us to the end of Revelation 19. And all of the events from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation 19 pointed toward the eventual arrival of the Romans, the surrender of the city of Jerusalem through siege, and the destruction of the temple. All of that has taken place. One event after the other. 
one series of events recapitulated by another series of events recapitulated into a third series of events. Next week, we open Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22, we are at a place where we have not yet seen the fulfillment of these prophecies. And the understanding is, if we trusted Jesus for 40 years and saw the fulfillment of those prophecies from Matthew chapter 24 come to pass in our lifetimes, then we should trust that what is predicted in Revelation 20, 21, and 22 will also come to pass. And I believe, and you will too, that that is in fact the case. So it all comes together next week. And I'll look forward to delivering that lection in a lecture in a timely manner. But until then, that's all the time I have now. So I never tire, and you know I never will, of reminding you of what a great student you are. Thank you for taking the time to read, to read, to hear this lecture today. God bless and good day.